Hello and welcome to the podcast of The Lotus Eaters, episode 831 for today, Thursday the 18th of January 2024. I am your host, Connor, joined by Carl Hello. and special guest, Ralph Scholhammer. Thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, do you fancy introducing yourself to the audience? Because I'm sure you're going to do a much better job of it than I can. Well, I'll try. I'm always very nervous when I speak to a British audience because they're the ones I try to impress the most, so I'm going <laughs> to give my best. So as you probably can tell from my flawless English, uh, I'm not born here. I live in Vienna. I'm Austrian by, by birth. I teach economics and political science at a small American university in Austria. I'm also a visiting fellow at the MCC Budapest, which is a conservative think tank. I would argue it's the conservative think tank in continental Europe at the moment. Um, I write for several English publications, Spike, Unheard, and others. Um, and uh, I'm very, very happy to be here. I think the Lotus Eaters is one of the best podcasts out there. So this is a great moment for me. I hope that people will remember episode 831 in the years to come. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we met because you were torching the WEF on Neil Oliver's show in the GB News Green Room. So I just knew we had, to, we had to get you in at some point. So speaking of our topics today, we're going to be discussing why we want what Europe has, particularly its migration policy, because England doesn't seem to have any deportations in sight. Um, have you even read John Locke? We're reviving that meme because we're, we're litigating the liberalism debate. Much to much to happy to, it will be. Something I've got a lot to say on. <laughs> It'll be great fun. <laughs> and was January 6th an inside job? Per the recent Iowa caucus, I thought we'd look at some of the suspicious CCTV footage and, and talk about federal involvement there. But before we do, as it's Thursday, three o'clock today, UK time, if you aren't a premium subscriber yet, still time to sign up. But we do have Lads Out. It's episode 20. Ralph will be joining us for it. And it's what would you do with Elon Musk's net worth? What? I have a lot of answers to this. <laughs> yeah, how, would you, how would you be the world's dictator for a day? It wouldn't even be the world's dictator. It'd just be far-right propaganda wall-to-wall -wall <laughs> on every TV station all the time. But anyway, come on. Yeah, so it's going to be a fun one. Obviously, towards the end, we're going to take some of your comments and questions. So if you aren't a subscriber yet, £5 a month, you've still got time to sign up beforehand. and then. We'll get to interact with you. But without further ado, let's jump into today's stories. So, European politicians have started to push back against mass immigration, which is great for the Europeans. And I must admit, as a Brit, I'm just a little bit envious. Now, for those who don't know, the Rwanda bill passed yesterday. That thing where we have to pay for five years of an illegal migrant's bed and board to send them to Rwanda as some kind of deterrent, but the Rwandans can deport them back at any time and we have to pay for the flights if the migrant commits a crime. And judging the rates at which they commit crimes here, it's probably likely they're going to commit a crime in Rwanda. So not, not brilliant, no. Uh, it was going to have some amendments. There are about 60-odd Tories that voted for Robert Jenrick's amendments. Robert Jenrick was the former immigration minister, resigned when he realized, in his own words, that Rwanda was never meant to work. Yeah. And so he implemented four amendments with himself and Sir Bill Cash. And this was to age verify through medical documents whether or not you were an actual child migrant, because we've had lots of cases where grown men have posed as schoolboys to stay in the country. And also, if you are trying to do an extenuating circumstances argument of why you shouldn't be boarding a plane to Rwanda, you also have to do a medical check. So you can't just keep appealing to the ECHR. None of those got through. And so at least 11 Tory rebels stuck with their guns and they said, we're not going to vote for this at all. Not just not going to abstain, we're going to vote against it. And this included Bill Cash, Suella Braverman, Robert Jenrick, Andrew Jenkins, Mark Francois, Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger, some of the ones that like, deserve to keep their seats. They're about the, the handful of Tories that, yeah. that do, but they're going to be quite deservedly wiped out in the next election. And the reason they're going to do that is because you look at the asylum numbers, the Telegraph was published as of last week. Britain actually approves asylum seekers at a rate of 75.1% up until 2023. So that's up from 31.1% in 2018. So that's pre-Brexit, lower, post-Brexit, much higher. 
especially with a much different composition of said asylum seekers. The five main countries they're coming from, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Iran, Syria, and Sudan. Iran? Yeah. Iran. I guess they're going toward Pakistan now. So. Yeah. <laughs> so they're also not all the Iranian women who were burning yeah. their hijabs and being persecuted by the state. And just a small suggestion, none of those countries really share our values. I mean, I know I'm wearing a black shirt, but it's not far right to notice that they are countries with a high proportion of terrorism. And so the likelihood of having lots of people unvetted coming from those countries to ours might constitute a security risk. Maybe. Again, just looking at Europe as well. So we're now double that, the asylum acceptance rate, of countries like France. So France is 30%, Sweden's 32%. We're also 50% higher than Italy, which is 46%. Sorry, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but Sweden's only 30%. Yes. We're 75%. How are the soft Swedes kicking well, our asses on this? Correct me if I'm wrong. You, you might know a bit more about this, but weren't the sort of centre-right Swedish party recently elected and they promised to crack down on migration numbers? Yeah, they did. I mean, they're not part of the government, but they kind of, they, they support the conservative government. And the Swedes, this is true for the Scandinavians generally, the Danish are even stronger than this. Uh, for whatever reason, we can talk about this as well because the answer is going to drive the left crazy. Um, usually they're much better in changing course when they see that uh, the reality kind of reasserts itself. Um, and this was the case in energy policy. It's the case in migration policy. It was, by the way, also the case in welfare state policy. Like so many people like Bernie Sanders, they'll talk about, we have to be like Sweden. Uh, you might want to take a closer look at Sweden, how they actually do No, 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 let him cook. Let him and cook. The, <laughs> the, the big irony is, of course, that one of the strengths is uh, that most of the Scandinavian countries have been until recently uh, very homogeneous Swedish, Danish, uh, you know, Finnish states. And that plays a role because if people have a sense of identity, if they have a sense what we talked before the show, a sense of belonging, it makes the execution of policies much easier. Eric Kaufman's book, White Shift, and yeah. I did a really good interview with him recently. We spoke about how diversity is not a strength because if you have these fractionating ethnic, cultural, and religious interest groups making up increasing coalitions and voter blocks in your country, then because they're not particularly liberal and enlightened, they're not going to want to reach collective solutions. They're going to want to vote themselves power, wealth, and resources as part of their interest in-group. And so that's why African nations, compared to their more homogeneous counterparts, find it difficult to get infrastructure projects together because you've got so many tribal interest groups. They can't vote where you dedicate the money to build the next bridge for example. It's just a disaster. And so we're importing that sort of politics over here and wondering why we can see the decline all around us. Well, we're not because we're in Twindon all the time, but everyone in the London bubble is going, well, what do you mean? Diversity is still a strength, right? Maybe just jump in real quick. I mean, even if it would not be about the redistribution of resources, it would be a problem. Robert Putnam, who is really not a right winger, right, wrote, it must have been in 2017. So this was really quite a while ago now. He wrote this great paper called The Pluribus Unum. So if, if some of the viewers or listeners want to look it up, I think it's free available, where he and he's pro diversity, but he kind of builds his argument. He says, well, if a society gets more diverse, at the beginning, it's really problematic, but then somewhere down the road, the road it's really good. And he uses all this empirical data where he says, for example, you know, public participation in public events, uh, neighborhood activities, all these things go down. The only thing that increases is watching TV because people stay at home on their own, right? They stay among their families, they yeah. stay along a smaller and smaller community, but social life, social capital, social trust, right? It's probably the most important lubricant for, for a society to function. Uh, all of this is declining. And this is the big irony, kind of you mentioned it. Of course, what happens if societies, if individuals cannot for themselves maintain social cohesion? 
then more and more people turn to the government and say, you have to jump in and play the role that we no longer can play for us. And this is something so interesting because we have empirical data to show this, right? That diversity is a strength, is a slogan. The actual empirical data shows the exact opposite, but that's completely ignored. The, 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 the way I always uh, question it is, well, whose strength, right? When they say our, the, the first person plural doesn't include us, actually. It's just the left-wing state. It includes so, the state that's trying to manufacture yeah. consent for the expansion of its powers because it has to surveil over a population that is increasingly fractionated. Yeah. Because the other thing that increases, and he wrote about this in Bowling Alone as well before that paper, yep. it's TV watching and protest marches. And it's because those interest groups consolidate, they get organized, they get well-funded, and they brush up against each other, particularly in the streets, as we're now seeing every single weekend in London with mass marches in favor of Palestine after the massacre happened on October 7th. So, I mean, it, it is definitely someone's strength. You know, the state has got massive yep. uh, by comparison. Yeah, but, but it's uh, our weakness or, yeah. or our entertainment, maybe at the best. Uh, this is also something that Callum mentioned earlier in the week, but I wanted to just highlight it to you gentlemen, and that is that Onward, normally a left-leaning publication on those Westminster Tory think tanks, did a poll of about 4,000 people. And it found that nine in 10 parliamentary constituencies want to see immigration levels reduced and controls tightened. 75 constituencies wanted fewer controls and higher numbers, but the majority of those constituencies, 52 of them, were in the London bubble, where the majority of said immigrants are. Obviously, they want chain migration for their family members. So that's sort of ethnic and cultural in-group preference. It doesn't represent the rest of the democratic mandate in the country. The most liberal seat is actually Bristol Central. Believe it. Yeah, because that's the Portland of England, yeah. essentially, where there are. Yeah, no, it's it's terrible. Yeah, it's 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 not a nice place. <laughs> I, I wish the flooding were to increase. Anyway, <laughs> the, the fascinating thing though is, this is at the level of immigration salience that is probably peak that there has been for quite a while, but the majority of the country think net migration is only seventy thousand. So they are saying we want immigration overwhelmingly reduced, and they think it's ten times lower than yeah, it actually by a factor is. of ten. They're underestimating yeah. it. So imagine Incredible. if they knew just how bad the issue truly was. So uh, staggering stuff. I and just want to say this is going to come up in the lads' hour afterwards. What would I do with two hundred billion? Well, that is the thing. <laughs> I would just net migration is seven hundred thousand just on every billboard in this country. I'd buy a million rubber ducks and just push them off the shores yeah. towards Calais. <laughs> <laughs> but just you know, I would make sure that everyone knew, you know, because yes. they don't know. Yeah, quite. That's the problem. So people that do know, and this is actually your article in Unheard, which is very fortuitous for you coming in, are the Dutch, because the Dutch ran a study recently. Uh, I'll just scroll down to, to what you've said, because you're more than welcome to explain this for us. But this was from the University of Amsterdam, and it estimated the Dutch government spends $17 billion a year on migration between 1995 and 2019. And they, if I'm right, they broke the ethnic composition down of various migrants, and they found that European migrants positive economic contributors. Um, uh, Oriental Asian migrants are positive economic contributors, but Turkey, the Middle East, and Africa never actually create positive economic contributions during their stay in the country. Uh, do you want to take away some of the rest yeah, of the analysis like, you did? Yeah, they broke it down by, by mostly by Western and non-Western, uh, but the Danish finance minister did a similar study where they broke it down in uh, non-Western, Western, and Middle East, North Africa. Uh, the French, who are very bad at collecting that kind of data because they claim everybody in France is French and therefore we, don't, we ignore all of it, but they start to change this. They tried to do a similar study. They came to similar results with a very interesting outcome. There is one group that outperforms the native French, uh, and those is immigrants from what is nowadays Vietnam and was, was back in the day uh, into China. So very similar to what we see in the United States, right? That Asian Americans and the term doesn't yet exist. Maybe one day it will. Asian Europeans, if we want to say that, 
uh, usually tend to outperform the native population. Um, and all of this shows you something that I think deep down, everybody always knew that the cultural background, the values people hold, of course, have an impact on their economic fortunes as well. I mean, there is a, a very good example there. I think there are only two people uh, two peoples in the world who always highly valued reading and never had a long period of illiteracy. And that's the Armenians, the Jews, and I think the Green, no, the Icelanders, right? And this is, this is a difference. Uh, we know that education plays a very, very crucial role in Asian culture. So we, all, we know all of this, but we're not willing to talk about it. And I think there's one phenomenon. I did not go into this in this article, but uh, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about it. I'm sure you all remember there was a time, wasn't it in the 90s or was it before, when, when people had like little wristbands that said, what would Jesus do? Right, yeah. and uh, and I think we have a, and I don't want to be blasphemic here because I do consider myself at least culturally a Christian. But I think what we have reached in many stages of in the West, in many areas, is we have this kind of what would Hitler do uh, approach. And what I mean by this, what I <laughs> what I mean by this is I'm I'm quite it's a, it's I, I'm quite serious. What it's, I mean by this is, in an Austrian accent that's even funnier. <laughs> Austrian man arrives. But <laughs> what would Hitler do? <laughs> sorry, but you, sorry, I'm just. But you, no, no, no. But you know, you look at a policy, yeah, and yeah. then you say. Would Hitler approve of that policy? Yeah. Yes. And if the answer is yes, then you get this. I'm not even saying you, you're not even trying to make the rational argument, but you get this gut feeling of saying, then it must be wrong. And, and you see this in immigrants. You say, when, when we say, as we just discussed before, you have all the empirical evidence now, contemporarily, and also that the studies did Putnam did, that says, if you get more diversity, if you have uncontrolled mass immigration, it really is a problem. It has many negative effects. But the thing is, you do is you say, you say so what would Hitler do? And he said, he would probably agree with this with that proposition, so it must be bad. And this is much more, I would argue, a cultural phenomenon than another one. And it also, I think, dovetails nicely with what you said, is most people who have not been socialized and marinated in higher education at the universities don't necessarily subscribe to that worldview. I mean, this is there's this kind of this gaslighting when we say people with higher levels of education. I mean, you could might as well say people with higher levels of indoctrination. So the idea, the reference, right, to the Third Reich, to Germany, to to, to Hitler is much more popular in those circles than than in others. I mean, you saw this just as a quick point here. The American presidential campaign starts. The first big event by Joe Biden, and I think it was like the fifth or sixth sentence was, well, this reminds me of what happened in Germany in the 1930s. I mean, he's old enough. He probably was around in Germany in the 1930s. <laughs> so, so, so he might be an eyewitness to all of this. But everybody knows exactly what he's talking about, what he means. I mean, can you imagine if a German politician would say, or even an English politician would say, or a British politician, pardon me, would say, well, this reminds me of what happened in the United States in the 1860s, right? Everybody would say, why is he referring, what did the United States with the 1860s yeah. have to do with the UK now, with Austria now? But if an American presidential candidate says, this reminds me of Germany in the 1930s, everybody immediately says, I know what he means. And this is the quote unquote, what I mean by this, when I say, so what would Hitler do? Yeah. And, then you're, and then you look at the other candidate, and if you say what this candidate is doing would be approved by Hitler, therefore, he must be a fascist. He must be a Nazi. It's radioactive. Exactly. What I'm always surprised is that nobody uses these arguments again vegetari against vegetarians. Well, this is why I'm for the smoking, but I'm against the smoking ban, you know, because, I mean, Hitler would definitely be in Yeah, but he was also a vegetarian, right? Nobody said all vegetarians are Nazis. Even, well, Jordan Peterson might at this point, but uh, yeah. just a quick thing there, though. Uh, what, what I think is interesting is the instrumental nature of the analysis there, because that, that is all, all true, obviously, and everyone knows people from different kinds of backgrounds have different kinds of work ethics. But one of the things that that analysis doesn't reveal is intentionality. Um, one of the things that we have to be honest about is that certain cultures have different levels of goodwill embedded in them. 
And frankly, I know that from personal dealing with certain, some of these cultures and some of these people, that a lot of them don't come here with goodwill. Like, so if someone from Europe comes to Britain or someone from East Asia comes from Britain, they're going to think, right, they're, they're going to be coming thinking to themselves, right, I can make a lot of money by working really hard. Yeah. Well, actually, a lot of cultures don't value that. And a lot of cultures see us as absolute saps and rubes and fools for having welfare systems that they can just actively exploit because they come from a very low trust, insular, um, clannish society in which actually it's acceptable and normal to take advantage of some idiot who's willing to be taken advantage of. And we're just not cognizant of this. And but that's the reality for a lot of these other countries. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a fantastic point. And, and this is one but that always bothers me so much. Is, this sounds now I sound like a really old man or so much older than I am. But nobody knows anything anymore, right? Exactly what you say. So when we talk about culture, for example, very often it's not about a particular you know, dress code or a particular food. That, that can be part of it. But it's something exactly what you described. We tend to forget that particularly in Europe or in, in, in the West generally, and this was due, not intentionally, but it just happened historically, that the, the family as, as particularly the tribal family, the clan, the large family structure was broken down by Christianity, was broken down by the Catholic Church. This is how a more small family-based individualistic society emerged, exactly what you said. And then it was much easier kind of to create the very, very fine-tuned and interesting relationship Europeans or Westerners have developed to their state, right? But that is very different, exactly what you said. For example, in the Middle East, in Pakistan, like I, a good friend of mine, she, she's from a Pakistani family, um, a, a very prominent one. She says, I mean, politics in Pakistan are oriented in many ways towards the last, the last name, the family name, towards the clan, the tribe. And who runs, they say, but they have elections. They do. Yeah, but yeah. who runs for elections is decided by right who is where within the clan structure. And who votes for that person exactly, is decided right? by their surname. And that's the so. point is, is always, the point is not to say, kind of, to demean it, but I think this is a completely different approach towards society. This is a completely different approach towards authority. Uh, and I think to ignore that or to forget that is a very, very dangerous game. And it's that bothers me. It's so ignorant. It's why is it always, particularly those who are in favor of multiculturalism, who always deny that there are actual differences between cultures? But I think what we discuss here, that is true multiculturalism. Right? Yeah. It is showing a genuine interest and curiosity about how things are done in different places. It's the other side that constantly says, well, you know, we're basically all the same. If you put, if you take somebody who you know grew up their entire life in Afghanistan, you bring them to Great Britain, and within two weeks they're British. I mean, even people who are very much enjoyed and like to read, like Christopher Hitchens, and I don't mean to talk bad about somebody who, who died, made the similar argument when he said Western civilization is so seductive, right? You are here, you you watch a bit of porn, you drink a couple of pints, and then you're British as the next guy. This is not how it works. <laughs> no, no, I wish really... it would be. I wish it would be. Yeah. But it's not magic soil, quite. No, and, and, and the reason why they're so set on denying cultural differences is because they have a utopian pipe dream undergirded by sort of universalist liberalist assumptions, which I'm sure we'll get into in the next segment, that if we just suppress the native culture enough and allow the expression of this other culture enough, that there won't be a conflict. And if we can stop the mediation of all conflicts, then we can all peacefully coexist. And that doesn't take into account human motivations or the fact that you're importing people who might not consider themselves your neighbor, so they might not consider themselves your moral equal. And so it's a plan that's just not going to work. Well, the thing is, they don't understand the message they're telegraphing to these foreign groups either. Because what they say to this foreign group who consider themselves not an individual, like we view ourselves as individuals, but they view themselves as part of a, a cohesive structure. And so what the government is telegraphing to these people, and they say, no, look, these people can't say this to you. These people can't do that to you. And we're actually going to take their money and give it to you. and expect nothing of you in return. 
that group of people thinks that they are superior. A privileged class. Yeah. Because they, they can't power help structures but think, right, telling hey, essentially, this is a subjugated people we're taking money out of. You know, and it's it's a very old world way of looking at the thing, but no, I mean, and, and I think there's, there's there's I think there's nothing wrong with with talking about this. There, I mean, you know, maybe Osama bin Laden is not the perfect person to quote, but uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, I'm sure many of your viewers also know that his supposed famous saying that if people see a strong horse and the weak horse, they're automatically attracted to the strong horse. But that is not wrong. I mean, we all it's do the true. same thing. There's to, to give you one example, um, just in in a little more l less provocative way. But usually after presidential elections in the US, they, they they retake polls and say, so for whom did you vote? And what it then turns out is like when they then add up the, the post-election polls, they get above 100 percent because many people have voted for the losing guy after the election say, oh, I, I voted for the winning guy. I knew that he's or she's yeah. go, is going to win. And that's exactly this phenomenon. You want to be on the winning side. You want to be on the side that has, quote unquote, I never know exactly what this word means, so I hope I use it correctly. Uh, the side that has swagger, right? The, 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 no, that no, seems, that's completely That correct. seems confident, yeah, yeah, yeah. that seems strong. And this is exactly what you just said. Um, if we think we present ourselves understanding and sensitive, but very often we present ourselves as weak. And I don't want to go into this topic because I don't know nearly enough about it as I should. But, but for example, the grooming gang things that, that in Britain, right? A apart from the atrocity and the, I can only use the word evil, I don't have another yep. term, but it's also a sign of weakness. If you live in a world where you are more afraid of being called a racist than uh, supporting or helping a girl that is most likely being raped and impregnated against her will. Um, I don't know how much more weakness you can show. You can tell, this is the thing, yeah. but you can tell yourself that it is a form of strength, but nobody buys it, right? Nobody believes it. Especially not the people doing the victimizing. Exactly. They think yeah. that you are so profoundly weak that you won't even stand up for vulnerable children. So, I mean, again, the, the message that we send to them when we do that is just the, the total opposite of uh, impersonate what we do, you know, admire our values and integrate into the values. It's like, well, why would I? Your values are pathetic and it makes you unbelievably dis not respectable in any way, shape yeah. or form. Well, so anyway, this is, this is one, we can look at a data set here. I think Callum mentioned it earlier as well. Uh, the Dutch looked at the crime rates per perpetrated by the native Dutch versus new immigrants. And they actually found, and this is, I think, because they think they can get away with it, that uh, people of immigrant background were about two to four times more likely to commit violent offences in, in the Netherlands. But than this this is because Dutch. every single Western government has basically been telegraphing to these entire continents, come here and commit crimes. That's essentially what we've been saying to them. It's like a sensible country. If, <laughs> if a foreign immigrant came over and murdered someone, that person would be hanged in public for everyone to see. So look, this is what we do. So if you come to our country and don't follow the rules and you murder someone, you get hanged. They, they get nothing. They don't even get a slap on the wrist. They don't even get deported now. They Probably even yeah. not with the new Rwanda legislation either here. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, the message we send to them is actually we want you to come here and do this to us. We've got some sort of masochistic fetish for yeah. this kind of thing. That's the message they receive. There is, I mean, this was kind of, you know, in days back, I forgot what year it was, must have been in the 18th century or something. And I'm sure that some of you have heard the story about Sir Charles Napier. He was responsible for, for a certain part, I think, in India um, uh, during the colonial times, during the imperial times. And and he encountered the, the then still widespread tradition uh, of of sooty, right? The, 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 the widow okay. burning, and and uh, apparently he said, "So what are you guys doing here?" And they said, "Well, it's our custom here. If the, somebody dies, the widow then gets gets burned with the, the 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 dead husband, the late husband." And apparently that's how the story goes. He said, 
well, that's a very interesting uh, custom. So we have also a custom. And then he told his carpenters to build something next to the, to the funeral empire. And the people were very curious and said, what are you building there? And he said, well, a gallows. And I said, why did you build a gallows? Because he said, well, I said, um, because where you are, you burn widows. Where I come from, people who burn widows are hanged. And first you follow your customs and then we follow ours. Exactly. And and it was done. I mean, again, th- these days we would say this was very culturally insensitive, but... Oh, yeah. uh, Good. I, yeah. I, that's, that's the thing. Right? <laughs> you, you, you cannot... And the point, but uh, what I also like about the story is, there was an understanding you cannot have two cultures or, or these two values exist uh, at the same time right you cannot it's, it's impossible so either you know burning a widow is a crime or it's not you cannot say it's okay from monday to wednesday but it's a crime from thursday to sunday and this this idea that you can when it really goes to the matter of things at, at the heart of cultures it's very hard to have compromises be- between different cultures there must be in every country some kind of what it is ultimately we'll see but it's only a very short period of time where you can have these different cultures coexisting right next to each other. Because as human beings, and you mentioned this before, this is not how we work. I'm like my favorite English philosopher is Thomas Hobbes. First of all, he was funny. Uh, he has a great biography. There's a lot about him that I like. But I think he had this kind of vision, right? This idea that if we just accept that that life is what it is, it's so precious, it's most likely so short. So why do we constantly engage in all these fights over symbols and flags and vanities and so? And if we can get rid of this, then we can basically you know live and let live, and everybody does as, as they please. But this is not how we function. We care what our neighbor does, right? We care what somebody else does, and we want at some point to impose our values on the other side. And one side is gonna ultimately is going to win. And this is, as you say. What we call tolerance, I think, is justifiably in the eyes of others weakness. Yes. And I think that's the only way how we can put it. Yeah. So if I can just sorry, sorry, through. just so there's also another aspect to this. If these were totally alien people who had never heard of us, then maybe you could expect something uh, encountering more of a maybe enlightened position. If this was you know some sort of remote island who a, a British man, I've never heard of one of those. But actually, these people carry a long baggage of. Um, imperialism uh, as our former subjects and so they don't look at this as oh it's year zero we've arrived at the new liberal dawn and so the slate is washed clean and now okay well the, the british are acting a bit weird but fair enough no a lot of them carry an ethnic resentment against the west actually a lot of the tweets back to you are with a flavor of vengeance yeah and i'm, I'm not you know i'm not relishing the fact that that's the case i'm not pro-imperialism or anything like that but that just is the case. And again, it's just something that our political class has completely lost their minds over. Can I throw one last thing in there? Because, because this is, I don't want people to say these are three extremely good looking, but yet uh, you know, <laughs> kind of boring white males who, who are just going to re- rehash all the culture wars because they matter and they matter yeah, for other aspects. So we talked about you know, kind of what it meant domestically, but it also matters internationally. And, and I said before the show that we're going to throw out all kinds of historical anecdotes. Yeah, so yeah, let's yeah, live yeah, up yeah, to I our promise. Um, right there, we see that the Don Pacifico affair, like in the 1840s, it's this, this, this story about this, this Portuguese Jew who also happened to have British citizenship. Uh, and he was in Athens and, and in an anti-Semitic riot, they burned down his house and his will and a couple of his belongings. And he was very upset. But unfortunately, I think a son of a, of a Greek minister was involved. So they didn't want to, to restitute him for the losses yet. So he did what, you know, a smart move. He said, well, I'm also a British citizen. So he went to the British government and said, look what happened to me in Greece. And they don't want to give me what they owe me. Mm-hmm. And the reaction of, of Palmerston, who was the, the, the prime minister back then, was they, they I mean, the story is a little bit more complicated, but in essence, they laid a blockade to, to Greek ports until the guy got what he, what he was owed. And when Palmerston was asked, I mean, 
you know, isn't that a little bit much for like one guy and one burnt house? And he said, and I, I tried to, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, he said, just like the, the like a Roman of old knew that saying civis Romanus sum, right? I'm a Roman citizen had meaning. So he expects that a British citizen knows that the strong arm and the watchful eye of England will be there no matter where they are. And that matters. And why, why am I telling this story? Because now we have a situation where you have in, you know, from, from Hamas, if people with British citizenship are taken hostage, mm. they can do this because they are not afraid of the reaction. Yeah. You have a ragtag army like the Houthis, right? Blocking a major artery of global trade at the moment, at least, or, or sabotage, whatever you want to call it. They can do this because they're not really afraid of retaliation. And this brings me back to, unfortunately, the, I think Rumsfeld said that weakness is a provocation. I mean, again, and I think so, that's completely and true. And I think that's absolutely and true. And it's, it's been true all throughout history. And, as it's, well. this is the and it spreads because if we want to look at what's currently going on internationally, you, I think you can, at least in insignificant parts, trace it back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan because the world saw we went to Afghanistan, we deposed the Taliban, then we were there for 20 years, we left and we did not leave a single trace. Afghanistan is now exactly how it was on September 10th, 2001. This is a failure of epic proportions. And, you know, Boris Johnson always used to say about wind farms, uh, the world is watching. I'm not sure if they're watching the British wind farms, but they have been definitely watching what happened in Afghanistan and they draw their conclusions. And this is kind of the world we live in now. I mean, while we speak, you have what Iran bombing Pakistan and Pakistan bombing Iran, yeah. Turkey bombing nor northern Syria, northern Iraq. Like everything is kind of spiraling out of control because the supposed order maker or the superpower, whether we call it the US or the West, are no longer taken seriously. And everybody thinks this is our moment and they jump on it. And as we say, the culture wars have actual political repercussions domestically and internationally. Yeah, this that's a great point as well, because this is a direct outgrowth of very left-wing philosophy. Exactly. To project this weakness around the world. I mean, do you remember um, Obama and Biden? Uh, essentially funding the Iranian nuclear program. Yeah, they, um, so they've doing? reinvigorated that now. So yeah. a brief explanation of that. The funds were held in a South Korean bank account because the South Koreans were uh, purchasing oil from Iran. And as a threat of withdrawal of American troops from South Korea, they paused that. The Biden administration reinvigorated that. And even though the funds haven't been released yet, about a month later, the Iranians then started subsidizing yeah. um, Hamas and Hezbollah and uh, the, the Houthis. And so even the money hasn't been directly sent there, it's now just a fungible thing that they're almost guaranteed to get. Yeah. So you're emboldening the terrorists. Um, if I could just breeze Sorry, through. Yeah. Briefly. No, no, it's yeah. fine. This is, the conversation's fantastic. I'm just conscious of time. So this is what the Europeans are doing. And I'll, I'll get a brief explanation from you because, again, you're very on the ground with this stuff. So the Dutch have recognized this and recently they had one of their elections. Now, Gert Wilders is still seeking in a subsequent election a majority. He's trying to ally with the Farmers Party and the Conservatives. Now, this is an article that's behind the paywall for GB News, but I'll summarize it quite quickly. Um, he, as seeking the coalition, he's dropped a few pieces of draft legislation. So he's dropped banning expressions of Islam to stop dual nationals from voting, to stop dual nationals from holding office. But the fact that those are the sort of marginal policies that he's trying to do, the, the most fringe ones, he's doing Trump's big ask yeah, of where yeah. he's put forward the most far-right policies he's got, dropping them to build a coalition and then still committing to the deportation of criminal illegals, which pre-enlightenment politics, totally reasonable thing to do. And then we look at Germany and we look at the polling. The, the AFD are now second in the polls. They're at 23%. <laughs> uh, Bo has interviewed their leader on our website, yeah. so you can go and go and look at that. I gave a speech in Parliament when they're on like 10% in the German Bundestag. Uh, it was the very first piece of premium content we put up on the website, actually. 
uh, is me talking about um, what uh, white fragility is yes. uh, to the, the, the Germans and basically explaining, look, I'm really sorry. This is essentially the Anglo disease of liberalism that's coming home to you guys now. So I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I wonder why they're so high in the polls. Maybe it's to do with yeah. the fact that uh, knife crime has reached a 10-year high in Berlin. Might, might, be a, might be a correlation there. This is, this is from Remix. Uh, the late statistics aren't broken down according to immigration status, but previous data from Berlin shows a vast overrepresentation of people of foreign extraction in knife attacks and violent crimes. In 2017, the Morgan Post reported that nearly half of all crime suspects in Berlin were of foreign extraction, a number highly disproportionate to their share of po- population. And in 2019, half of all prisoners in Berlin were immigrants. They now spend 1.5 million euros a day accommodating migrants in just 12 buildings. So that amounts to nearly half a billion every year. I wonder why people might be voting for the AFD if they're promising things like this. Um, we will return the foreigners to their homeland by the millions. You're, I bet that's a winning campaign slogan. You're, you're not going to get rhetoric that strong in the UK. Hence hence my jealousy. This is, this is Rene Springer, and he's said directly on Twitter, and this is a translated tweet here, um, we will return foreigners to their homeland by the millions. This is not a secret plan. This is a promise for more security, for more justice, to preserve our identity for Germany. And then they were saying, oh, were well, you going to denounce this? this? This clearly, what would Hitler do policy? Um, and then the leader just came out, Alice Fiedel, and she just said, yeah, we're going to do mass deportations. Border must be closed. Migrants must be turned away without exception. Etc. Now, you've got your ear to the ground in elections in Austria and Germany. You're familiar with the German farmers' protest. As you said, this weekend you're talking to Neil Oliver about that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on what's going to unfold? Well, I think what we see in Germany is there's uh, this also like another famous anecdote uh, by Lenin, supposedly, who once said that uh, if the Germans want to want to storm a train platform, the first buy a ticket to actually be allowed to get on the platform. Um, there's even there's even a funnier one, which is true that in in 1944, the German propaganda minister from Goebbels uh, felt obliged to issue a statement that if you are on a train platform waiting uh, to have your your ticket clipped and the sirens go off because the, the bombers are coming. Uh, it's more important to seek shelter than to wait for the conductor to clip your ticket because that's you know that's that's how unlikely the Germans are to revolt. Yes. So this is, I would say, a very, very very significant event, even though the media, most of it at least, is is quite silent on it. And you can see, I think, about sixty eight percent of the German population is supporting for now at least the farmers' protest because there's a general sense it's of course much more than just the farmers. There's a general sense, I think, and I think that sense is true in Great Britain. I think it's more and more true also in continental Europe. It just took a while for now to really take hold, let's say, in the public imagination or the significant part is that governments don't really prioritize their own people, right? This, this idea that the, the, the priority of a government is the, the well-being and the needs of its own population and then to save the world, whether it's climate or anything else, right? that, that they got their priorities entirely inverted. And the other thing is, which you guys mentioned, I think quite importantly, is there was still an underestimation of the dimension of migration. And I think there was, and this I have to admit is a blame I lay 100% at the feet of the media, that we have constantly been told that these are all fantastic people. I remember in 2015, and that's a direct quote, in 2015, yeah, the yeah. then um, uh, chief economist of the Deutsche Bank, I mean, if you look at the stock index of the Deutsche Bank, it explains uh, their hiring policies. They probably have the wrong people in high position. But he said, Volkas Landa was his name. He said, the refugees that are going to come to Germany, and this was in 2015, right? I said, this is going to create a new renaissance. 
that's a direct, that's a direct quote. Right, so all these doctors, is, lawyers, and engineers. Precisely, right. it is the best that can happen. And of course, you know, or the Green Party, of course, at the famous, uh, you know, we get quote unquote free people. It's also great. It's also it's also wonderful. But in the aftermath of October seventh, what happened in Israel, and particularly under the mass demonstrations, you had all over Europe. I think this also played a role in the Netherlands. You saw no, no, these people never really arrived here, and the. The other thing, which in this debate also with, with what the AFD is saying, there are two ways to look at citizenship. One way to look at it is, is it's a piece of paper, it's a passport. The other one is it's also a commitment to the kind of country to which you have now, you know, which, which granted you citizenship. That it's more than that. And I think many Germans, many people in Britain see it this way. Yeah. So if says, we can't deport these people because they are British citizens. I think many people say, are they really? Sure, sure they, have the, they have the paperwork, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but are they really citizens? They're are not they, my neighbors. Exactly. And this matters. There's this idea that you can entirely shift real life into a kind of legalistic process. Um, for most people, it's, it's absurd. And, and I think there should be ways. And I think this is not an, it's outlandish if you read The Guardian and The Economist. But I think for most common sense people, the idea if somebody got granted citizenship, then actively joins with what I can only describe as, you know, Her Majesty's enemies, yeah. then I think that citizenship should be revoked. I mean, this is, this, this is not, there's a reason why, this is my all-time favorite phrase in English or British politics, Her Majesty's loyal opposition. I think that's a beautiful phrase because it says you are the opposition, but you're still loyal to the country. Like you disagree on policy, you disagree on certain elements. But you don't you don't question the, let's say the system itself. And, and, oh yeah, it's, and, and that's. But there are many people who do that to basically yeah. say your system is crap. We want ours. You know, yeah. whether it's Islam for UK or all these these, these other movements. I mean, more more British Muslims joined ISIS than the British army, and that tells you everything. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And then I've got a friend, a Norwegian friend, who who just summarized it really good. He was like, look, they failed the test of friendship. Mm. They're just not your friends, yep. and they're they're taking advantage of the legal structures you put in place to advantage them. But there's no, you know, kind handshake there, and it's like, okay, well then you can't, you can't be friends with these people. You mm. can't have them, and and this is the distinction everyone knows. Okay, legally you might be have, have the legal right to be here, but we're not. There's no we that connects us together. Mm. And with that, thank you very much for that topic. Uh, I am an Englishman, for once, uh, very envious of the Germans. Yeah, right. On to the next one, then. Carl, you have read Locke. Too many times. Right. Okay. Well, it, it turns out that lots of famous liberals just sort of haven't. Yes, I know. It seems that they've I only... I learned that recently. They've only... They think liberalism started and ended with MLK's I Have a Dream speech. Yes, I learned that, yeah. Which is ironic because he was also a communist. But, but the point being, what I want to bring up here is that Carl recently upset some prominent liberals on Twitter by suggesting that liberalism and communism are not inseparable, in a way intertwined, and that communism is executing on the unfulfilled promises of liberalism. Yes. Which is ironic, because on the same morning, and check the website very soon on, on premium content, we recorded a podcast, Why Wokeness is Liberalism. It is weird how that uh, converged. God has a fantastic sense of humor. I'm sure he does. So, don't roll your eyes. <laughs> Lauren Chen nearly got you yesterday. Also, go listen to Carl's chat about this with, with Lauren Chen that was aired yesterday. But I'm going to just preface this with the body of work that we've done on the website that you have done to set the stage for why you're an authority to talk about this. And Ralph particularly wanted to disentangle this topic, so very fortuitous. So you've done two articles on the five false assumptions of liberalism. Ten to, in total. Yeah, yeah and I, you have plenty more for a project in the future, I, I am sure. But So do you want to give a quick summary of what the false assumptions are? Sure. Uh, liberalism evolved out of um, England, uh, mostly, in the 16th, well, uh, yeah, yeah, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, and this 
corresponds with the development of the concept of ideology, because prior to that, this didn't really exist. Um, and when it's a very, very long subject, but essentially, um, the problem of the Enlightenment, I think, is the sovereignty of reason, uh, taking itself as the sole epistemological tool uh, of conception about the world. And so, as soon as you locate all um, valid knowledge in what is purely conceptually understandable, then you realize actually there's a, there's a huge amount that you're taking away there. And this means that if you are going to co rationally construct a philosophy that begins on a set of premises, then follows through to a logical conclusion, uh, actually it's inevitable that you will have left behind a lot of information. Because uh, Locke, in fact, had a great turn of phrase for this. He says, all abstraction is subtraction. You are, you are seeing a thing, you're extracting something out of it, and then whatever you're leaving behind, you're subtracting out of it. And this is what Professor Michael Oakechok uh, described as the um, draining off of the moral, the liquid of the moral tradition to find the grit of the, the moral specifics. And so instead of being able to simply drink all of this down and get the good morals, the good governance, the good politics, uh, we've drained all that out and we're trying to choke down the grit of the ideological, rational assumptions. And okay, well, maybe that works if you are, say, the English-speaking Americans who are essentially just having what you believe just parroted back at you. Uh, and so you're still in the moral fluid of your tradition. Um, but when you take that out and then you apply it to, say, France that doesn't have the kind of English political tradition, well, you get the French Revolution, you get the Russian Revolution, you get all sorts of terrible things that happen because these things are um, based on something that is outside of your cultural experience. And moreover, if you start examining actually what the presuppositions of these liberal thinkers were, you realize they're nonsense. They're not true. These things didn't happen. And so this primarily, I would say, comes from the problem of the state of nature. A man never lived as an isolated individual in the forest, and he didn't come together to form a civilization, and therefore everything that comes on from that. And so if you are to ideologically, outside of this cultural fluid, uh, take liberalism and apply it somewhere, it just fails. And we're seeing, we're living through the failure of it right now. Part of the problem of that is that an ideology is intended to export a political tradition from a particular time and place and think it's applicable elsewhere. For example, yeah. the Americans thinking that we can just export democracy to Iraq and we can just yeah. bomb it into being liberal. But as Joseph de Maistre, one of the critics of liberalism, quite contemporary at the time, observed, different governance styles are ergonomic to different peoples, different cultures, even different geographic landmasses. It's easier to think of yourself as an individual, frankly, if you're on an island like UK, rather than if you're a German with beset by all sides possible invading enemy states. So it just doesn't come as naturally to us. And so one of the things that we did uh, to execute on this series internally within, within Lotusiers is that we had a three-part debate series on liberalism with our colleagues Josh and Stelios, who are very well read. Josh knew a lot of the psychological literature on individualism, and he's a libertarian, and decided to play a bit of devil's advocate as well. And Stelios thinks of himself as a very learned classical liberal because I he mean he was a lecturer at York University on philosophy. So exactly. He and knows so, what he's talking about. Absolutely. And so our critiques of Stelios's classical liberalism were that, frankly, not every liberal is as smart as you, as we'll see <clears> shortly. <throat> not everyone has read the theory. And unfortunately, there is this antagonistic dyad in liberalism because you value freedom and equality. They're not the sole values. There's also progress and universality pitfalls of its own. <clears throat> but freedom and equality can often be in conflict. And so if the Marxists come along and say, well, you haven't achieved equality, and that means people aren't free, then they can subvert liberalism from within, judo flip it, and, and have some momentum to transition the liberals from the Marxists. And the liberals don't have much of a defense against that. 
Any thoughts on this so far? Oh, yeah, no, I, I love this debate. I think this is such a crucial, important debate, and it's exactly the kind of debates we should have because ideas have consequences, as the famous saying goes. So understanding where ideas come from and where they differ and where they're actually very similar or potentially the same is an incredibly important uh, this discussion to have. And I was very much intrigued by, I think, a very quick tweet you made. I think, was it communism is liberalism or liberalism is communism? Well, I didn't, no, no, I'm not saying they're the same thing. I know, no, they're connected. <clears throat> Sorry. That, that, you, you, they're, they're you were much more precise. Communism yeah. isn't separate from liberalism. Yes. <clears throat> and and kind of, I would like to, just for the, for the sake of, of, of provoking a little bit of a, of, a, of a debate, but I think it's an important one, and I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this. Um, if we even go beyond the 17th century, if we go back a little further, I think, of course, one of the, the connecting things between all these Western ideologies, I would argue, is... And I don't mean this as a criticism, but I think we have, in my opinion, at least, this is something we have at least to discuss, is that a common root that they share is Christianity. I think you see in many ways, right? The universalism of it, that the kind of the idea, that the very idea of the, you know, the oppressor-oppressed relationship. I think these are all things that grew out of, of a common, uh, sorry, of, of, of the Christian worldview. It kind of, that it morphed then into something, even vocism, I think, has philosophically, not theologically, a lot in common with, with certain aspects of Christianity. As that. I consider myself a Christian, so this, this, I, I'm not speaking at this from an atheist viewpoint, but as a, that there are many of the things, and this is, I find, one of the things we also discussed early on. The, the true proof of culture, cultural values, is if you have internalized those values so much, you don't even recognize that you have internalized them. So, And this brings us back to the immigration debate. We have the sense that somebody who comes from a country that is different from ours, that is poorer, that have, you know, that, that, is, that, is, that is more authoritarian, we immediately see them as a victim, right? We immediately see them then through this Christian lens that this person is a victim. Therefore, he resembles, not, not even, but even the atheist might just not in different terms. It resembles kind of Jesus on the cross, right? This is somebody, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean, right? It's somebody... Okay. Who, who deserves our admiration. This is why then in the United States there's sometimes these things, you know, where people then go to the southern border and, and clean the shoes of, of people that cross that cross over the border in, in, in a kind of sign of, you know, but that's exactly what it is. It's, it's but the Pope did that, re- I mean, he's a Marxist, but the Pope did that recently, washing the feet of African migrants. Exactly, right? And this, this I think, this shows you that the connection is even stronger. And what I find always particularly interesting about this is because in, in many ways, when we talk about Western civilization, that kind of behavior would be completely alien to a Roman or an ancient Greek. Uh, and what I find even more interesting is there is only, and I say this with all, and to be very clear here, I must, here I must be very careful. Um, there's a difference between understanding and approving or understanding and endorsing. But even in many ways, the communist ideology is, I am exaggerating here, right? But I think it is fair to say that in many ways, it takes at least some cues from, from Christianity. Again, the idea of right, the uprising of the proletariat kind of against the oppressed class. Yeah. But there is, there is the, 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 the oppressed center oppressed. Oh, again, also what's, what's the essence of wokeness? And that ultimately the oppressed is going to win. And just, just this one last point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only philosophy. And this, of course, makes it even, I guess, funny with the German accent. The only philosophy that really diverged from this, if you want, was kind of late 19th century German philosophy around Schopenhauer, about, uh, around, around Nietzsche. And then, of course, ultimately, I mean, even, I, um, you know, even national socialism and fascism is more different than I would think. But that, in a sense, right, was, was this idea that, wait a moment, why exactly um, should, should it be the moral right thing to be to support the weak, right? To be on the side of the weak. Uh, why shouldn't we do something to support the strong, to make sure that they can flourish, right? The, the whole Ubermensch and Supermensch idea, and this idea by Nietzsche that, that Christianity is a slave religion. So again, I prefer Christianity. And this is, as I said, this is understanding, not approving. But 
this is very often why I don't like the contemporary debate. And that's why I think Carl made such a very, very but just an interesting, succinct, and important contribution. We need to get beyond the right calls everything they don't like Marxism, the left calls everything they don't like fascism, and that is supposed to be a debate. That is not a debate, right? That, that is not a philosophically <laughs> intriguing debate. This is just name calling. And there is, um, just as a last quick point on this, is I think that, that at least since 1945, as a random date, but I think it's not entirely wrong, philosophy has become a debate about different shades of liberalism. Yes. But it's not really a debate about potential alternatives. Now, let me also be very clear here. I mean, this is what Socrates was more or less saying. Right? Philosophy can be dangerous because I admit that we would be, like, if we would have a debate about, hypothetically, wow, this is so different, but is it possible that the Nietzsche's of the world got something right? Is it, but I mean, this, is a, this can be a very uncomfortable debate and potentially a dangerous debate because once you, you, you say, well, you know, you say maybe they had a point, uh, you potentially shoot out the legs under, under liberal democracy, which is, again, going back to Socrates, is what, he, is what he said, right? He said, I mean, if you look at the trial of Socrates, basically Socrates first defends his position, but later on he also defends the position of the Athenian government to sentence him to death because he's aware that philosophy can be really dangerous. And, and I think that's, at least in settings like this, we should have these conversations because otherwise, to be honest, it just gets boring. Yeah, but you, yeah. I think you're completely correct. And that's why Nietzsche is something that uh, is, it's something people talk about now. Yeah. There's a reason that his critique actually had teeth. There's a reason that it scares people. His name is ominous when it comes up in a conversation because actually there was something true about what he was saying. And I mean, it can be uncomfortable in polite society to explore it, but you can't just sit there denying a true aspect of reality. This is the two sides of the post-liberal right, particularly in America, particularly in Washington, D.C., and that is the traditionalist, Latin mass going Catholic, vitalist revivalists, and the BAP acolytes, yeah. who are vitalist, but almost like neo-pagan, yeah. um, have very different ethnic and cultural particularities. And so that has been marginalized by the broad tent coalition, particularly the, the influential people like James Lindsay, for example, as, well, that's not liberalism. Therefore, we must brush that aside as being equivalent to yeah. fascism or Christian nationalism is uh, sort of dead end, even though I haven't read the book. But anyway, point being, so we, we, did, a, we did a little mini series on, on James's stuff because I was prostrated by the fact that he went to war of Christian nationalism without defining what it is. Um, are, are you still blocked, Carl? Or, or have, am I still? Uh, still yeah, blocked? no, I'm yeah. still blocked. Yeah, I mean, I don't consider it a great list, to be honest. No, it's a badge of honor, <laughs> frankly, at this well, point. It's not even a badge of honor. Like, I, I liked James Lindsay just fine. And then, I mean, as you can see by his reaction to me, it was just really childish and ill-informed. Yeah. Like, I, th I thought he would be able to explain to me what his position was, and he couldn't. And he gets personal really quickly. He got, yeah, and, and yeah. I was like, okay, well, if you think I'm your enemy, then that's your problem, because I've defended James Lindsay on many occasions. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, why did I do that if uh, this is the kind of response I'm going to get, right? Because... Because I wasn't just, you know, being bigoted about it or anything like that. You know, I've, I've long studied the liberal tradition. I've come out of it and been like, right, okay, actually, I think I've identified some concrete problems on this. Uh, and James Lindsay just acted like a child. So I was just like, okay, well, then I didn't lose anything. To put it in a, a perfect frame of reference, you were acting like the loyal opposition. And yeah. he saw you as an existential enemy. Yeah, and it, yeah. I think it betrays a fundamental insecurity about his own knowledge of his own tradition. Yeah. Whereas you are very learned and you can identify the vulnerabilities and thinking that you're going in the same trajectory. But that, more of a just a quick thing, I'm an Englishman, therefore I'm naturally biased for the things liberalism wants, right? So I want to end up with those things because that's the English political tradition. I'm not abandoning that, but what I can't do is agree that we're going to continue with liberalism to get those things because we're not. We're going to go somewhere else, yeah. which is going to be atrocious. And so we need to challenge what liberalism's core assumptions are. Okay, they're actually quite easily challenged. We could change them. 
Yeah, and I think that's, again, that's just a good point because we've really narrowed in many ways the discourse, even those who, who want to, to broaden it. I mean, I'm sure you, we've, that's, I met you there, right? When the, the ARC conference took place in yes. London, right? The, was it the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship? And I think it was an interesting event. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's great if people engage and you have some big names to really try to make a difference. But even there, this, this new approach kind of to, 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 to find a utilitarian version of Christianity, yeah. right? Because I don't really believe in God or the gospel or Jesus, but it might be helpful. And this again brings me, that's even worse. Yeah. But if, if, if you're a convicted atheist and say, this is all nonsense, okay. But to say, I kind of still agree with the atheist, yeah. but for my own you know, psychological health, I pretend to believe. And this is, there is no, as Eric Hoffer would say, right? you, to revive your civilization, if we say that is the goal, and immediately admitting that the tool you want to use is something you don't really genuinely believe in, I'm sorry, that is not a great recipe. Yep. I and mean, this is, we tend to underestimate, you need, even in positive movements, you need a certain almost fanatic conviction. It's got to be sincerity. It's exactly. It yeah. has to be. You can't, there's no substitute for it and no amount of pretending just because it's functionally. I could not agree more. Yeah. 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 Because it's, sorry, because it goes back to what you said before. It's, it's basically. The same enlightenment thing. You say we are so reasonable now that we understand the, whatever the the positive effects of Christianity without actually believing in it. Yes. And that might be you can do this maybe with a certain you know layer of, of of society if you want. But if you want to reinvigorate an entire society by saying believe, pretend to believe in it even if you don't, I don't. If that's really going to work, you I need have the like, soul. You need, you need a person's soul. soul. You know, because I mean one of the, one of the things that um, people who discuss ideology always forget is this is a naturally self-selecting thing for people who are quite intelligent, uh, who have the capacity for extremely complex abstract reasoning. Well, the average person's got 100 IQ, actually. and They're not all PhD holding mathematicians it, like James Lindsay. Exactly. And if you want them all to come with you, you've got to stir the emotions. It's just you've got to make them truly believe. And, it, and they, not even you have to make them. They have to truly, authentically believe. And it's just the way that the thing works. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. To push forward with the, with the framing on this then, so just to set the stage, so this Twitter debate was ignited because Oran McIntyre pointed out that DEI, as you said, isn't just a form of Marxism. Yes, there are the long marches through the institutions, as Chris Russo has well documented in his recent book. However, they were successful because liberalism was the fertile soil in which these uh, bad seeds could germinate and grow. Just a quick thing though, <clears throat> no one ever asked, well, why do the communists always want to use liberalism to get to communism? And it's because the communists never challenge any of the original presuppositions of liberalism. They agree with the framing. Yeah, we want total liberty and total equality. Okay, great. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means all of civilization has to be gone. Hmm. That means no one can own anything and no one can be dependent on another person. And the liberals begin at that point. Yes. They literally begin at that point. They harmonize the concepts of liberty and equality into being the abstract individual who owns nothing and lives in the state of nature. Yeah. And the communists agree and the reason they the, the reason they're angry, and the reason if you read the Communist Manifesto, it is vengeful. The liberals have destroyed all of the sentimental bonds that held us together, and then they own their property. Well, why did we even come out of the state of nature in the first place? Well, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau all say, "Well, to protect our property." So yeah, because in the state of nature, you don't have property, and so commu the Communist Manifesto is just them saying, "No, no, no, we're not stopping your bourgeois freedom." And like, literally, Marx is just exactly this is what he says. This is your bourgeois conception of freedom. No, no, we're going back fully to the state of nature. You're not having any property. We're all going to be total equals. Everything is going to be as you promised in the beginning. 
That's why the liberals are still hanging around, the communists are hanging around in the liberal camp. Well, this is what they always will. The communists are liberal accelerationists as well. And this is something we discussed in that premium podcast. And that is that because liberals value progress, they don't have an argument against adopting technologies that get more yield out of less energy. So they have some sort of directive momentum to their historical narrative. And so the communists are saying, well, yeah, great. So, So do we. You say that we had the anthropology of the state of nature. We want to return to the state of nature. We just think we can do it now. But the thing is, if the liberals say, well, we can um, adopt private property measures as some compromise between uh, freedom and equality to manage scarcity. Well, if the liberals keep generating abundance- They abolish scarcity. Exactly. If you get to a position of abundance, what's the point of property rights if you're no longer negotiating rationing? So the liberals will arrive at communism through technology, and they won't have an argument against it. And when they reach communism, they'll just go, well, our procedures are redundant. Now we're all communists. Yes. And that, that's why they're constantly saying, well, Star Trek's the, the, the communist future. No, it's the and, liberal utopia. And, 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 yeah, but yeah. That, that was always the argument. I mean, well, no, it's very liberal. It's like, oh, actually, these things harmonize into the same thing in the very end point. Yep. That's the problem. Yeah, you know? exactly. And so that's why uh, James took umbrage with a very mature... But he's got no up. argument. He's got no argument on this. Because I'm right. Quite. Uh, also, individual liberty versus collectivism by state edict. Yeah, but the state edict is socialism as a transitional mechanism yeah. towards communism. And, and, you, and every socialist said this. Yes. And and even, and I've made a video on this in going into all the Marxist texts to say that because scarcity exists, the promise of communism is a pipe dream that people will use to sell to you so they can get dictatorship and power for themselves and remain at socialism. But if liberalism greases the wheels of the engine that will provide abundance, then you can actually get to state this class as communism. Because yeah. The state and and scarce rationing and the allocation of private property rights no longer matters. But for some reason, a man who's read a lot of communism doesn't understand that. Yeah, and, and I think there is there is just as a quick yeah, because this Please. is such a wonderful point. And I think just an error, even the kind of individual liberty versus collectivism by state edict. History is more complex and complicated than this. Yeah. Uh, uh, one, and you mentioned I think Carl, I think you tweeted it today or, or maybe yesterday. We're going to say that that the sense of belonging this is what we talked before, but also kind of be part of a community. Kind of finding moments in your life where you actually give up your individual liberty mm-hmm. is something that we do enjoy. Like that, there's 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 a sense in sacrifice has a positive element. There is, I know, John Milton says, you know, what is better to, or as some character in John Milton's Paradise Lost says, it's better to to serve in no, it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Yeah, Satan. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I say main, communism is satanic, a main, a main character, as I said. Yeah. But, but but this is a, this is really a crucial distinction, and and we did we tend to and this bothers me so much because we tend to forget at least particularly in the 19th century, states, governments, institutions did attempt to forge collectivism in a sense, like nationalism. This this idea, and I think this was, in the broader sense, a good thing. I think the idea to have national anthems, national authors, you know, a national language, these were good things. Did they kind of infringe on, on we can say it's kind of sad that there is now one Italian language and another thing like these 74 different forms that they had in the 1860s. There is something lost there. I'm the first one to admit it. But do I think it's good that they unified into Italy? I think it was good. I think, you know, in the German case, we can have a debate whether that was a good thing. <laughs> uh, so oh, oh, do I think it was a good thing that, you know, that the Welsh, the Scottish and the, the, the English and, and, and parts of, of, the, of the Irish, if you will, um, kind of have a unified United Kingdom Kingdom that I still believe historically, whenever it counted, stood on the right side of history. I think that is a good thing. But this was also done through symbolism, through you know certain um, rituals and certain acts. But that's not a bad thing. So I, I don't like this. Oh, it's either individual liberty or the state, you know, forces some community on you. Well, yes, but it, that's. But if it helps, I mean, Rousseau literally coined the phrase, "We're going to force you to be free." Yeah, uh, yeah. The, yeah. The state will, the ultimate liberal state, will literally make you maximally dependent on the state and minimally dependent on one another. 
So you will be forced to be that atomized individual who gets no one, no one's friendship or love or companionship or anything like that. So either way, like this isn't an, an either or discussion. Like both sides could be bad. You know, we've got to navigate exactly. And just this last yeah, one, please. because this is saying so crucially that this is kind of what Patrick Benin makes in, in his book about liberalism. Exactly, this. So, so the the idea then you the, the the once vision. I think that's probably the one where communists and liberals went wrong. That at some point the state is going to fade away. It's the exact opposite. Because as you say, if you break down bonds of community, something is supposed to replace it, and this is the state. But the problem is at least nowadays, or in the modern liberal vision, this is, for example, the unconditional basic income. Right? The state is not supposed to ask for anything in return. And there is, again, I think it's psychologically damaging to get a reward without any kind of obligation. I think this is a problem. You create a sense of entitlement Absolutely. that pervades so much of our society in a negative sense, which is why, again, I, we talked about all these problems with immigration, right? But if I, for example, go to the London Tube and I, I step over a 16-year-old, again, I hope I use this term correctly, I know English trollop who's passed out to on vomit. Uh, that's <laughs> also, correct. That's yeah. also not something that I would say. Well, look at English civilization. What? Yeah. So this is it's. Oh, I bloody would. Christ. Right, exactly. <laughs> but also, she's the apex of freedom, isn't yeah. she? She's yeah. consuming what she likes. She's got no bonds of obligation to anyone else. Yeah. So, yeah, the apex liberal woman is the drunk, passed out trollop. But you're you're completely right, and I, I I'm just saying this as a father. Uh, I would never give my children something without having them earned it. Right? Yes, they have to work for something if they want. Them. But here's the thing. But then, at some point in the in, in the, the liberal utopia, the state is going to step in and say to your children, "You don't need your father." Yes, well, exactly. Because because the, because we got because that's ultimately ultimately liberty in that sense means a yes. complete. It's not just we said the clan was, which I think was a good thing. Right? The clan was destroyed, but now it's kind of also moved to the kind of the small family formation yeah. where, where parents are. And you and, and the, the, the funny part about this is. Um, if we would have said this a couple of years ago, they would have said, oh my God, it's the whining, it's the, the alarm isn't. But yeah. this is exactly when you have lost, let's say, for example, at the school or a doctor has to support the transitioning of a child, right? Even if she's 12 or younger, without informing the parents. This is exactly what we are talking about. This is precisely this. So a state bureaucrat who doesn't know the individual has more of a say potentially in a young person's decision than the people who have known her or him or whatever than it is their entire life. And we would assume, I think in 90% of the cases, most parents love their children. Yeah. So even the automatic assumption is that parents want something bad for their children, but the state is the institution that wants the really true good. And that's... It's monstrous. And the, the, the idea that a state bureaucrat doesn't see you as anything other than a number on a spreadsheet is just baffling to me. I agree, yeah. It's, it's just, you, no, come on. These don't, they don't know you. They don't care about you. In fact, every number that crosses through their spreadsheet is a, an inconvenience to them. Like they, they don't, they don't get paid by the number. They don't get paid to be invested. They get paid regardless. So every number that comes through, the bureaucrats are like, right, get it off, get it off, right, I can go home early, you know. So just saying. Well, the opi incentives, opinions like this is what got you blocked. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe. <laughs> Which was a, right. a really mature re rejoinder, you know. <laughs> protecting children from the interventionist liberal state is apparently a blockable offence. And then someone did weigh in. I'll just I'll just finish on this because I made my point at the start: the assertion that liberals haven't read Locke. Uh, Helen Pluckrose, who was James's yeah. co-author yeah. on uh, cynical theories, James also co-authored a book with Peter Bogosian, who's coming in soon. Uh, um, titled, Peter's great. Peter's yeah. not got yeah. this attitude. Yeah. At all. Well, I assume Peter was who titled the book "How to Have Difficult Conversations" and not James. <laughs> uh, but, but, but Helen Pluckrose wades in yeah. and uh, has a has a large breakdown. Oh, maybe right. Well, I don't she, know what's happening there. But, yeah, good thing I screenshot that. Really. Yeah. So here's here's a screenshot. 
she she examined just to, your... just to explain this, right? Yeah. So um I was due to have just a friendly conversation with Helen, uh, who's an academic, about um, well, my articles on liberalism. And uh, the this was her notes that she had made, and she because she had to go to New Zealand for a family issue, so it didn't happen, and this had all kicked off. And so I, I, I screenshotted this because she's literally making the argument I'm making in those articles. Because when I the first point being pre-social man and state of nature, and she says, I don't know what it means. I'm not familiar with those philosophers. Uh, so the foundational liberal Proteus, philosophers. Hobbes, Rousseau, Locke, and a couple of others. Um, and she says, I'm not familiar. So, okay, well, we can't have a conversation about the philosophy of liberalism if, you've, if you're not familiar with those philosophers. I mean, it's just, she literally hasn't read Locke. In her bio... <laughs> In her bio, it is liberal principles and evidence-based ideas. And it's like... I, I further in, interrogated her argument before she blocked me. Um, <laughs> you, got blocked, you got blocked there as well. Yeah, I wasn't rude at all. I just want to be No, you clear. weren't. You weren't. I was very polite, like when I was dealing with Peter Hitchens. Um, and I, I, I just got her to explain the position. Her view, that, her, her view is that liberalism begins with Mill. Um, there's, a, there's a strong argument that Mill isn't really a liberal. Um, so he comes out of the liberal tradition, but... It, I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but like, okay. he doesn't really believe in natural rights. He's utilitarian. Yeah, and he doesn't believe in the state of nature. Either. Uh, so, uh, you can definitely argue that utilitarianism is a successor ideology, but not the same as liberalism, obviously. And um, Helen begins at the point of, "I'm a utilitarian." Mill was right, and it's like Mill wasn't right about anything. Actually, yep. I'm probably going to write a treatise one day on how utilitarianism is nonsense. You can't collectivize and redistribute happiness. That exists exclusively on our heads. It's all wrong. It's all anyway. So, so just to, just to, <laughs> not going to get into it. It's just just to finish so off wrong. with this as well. Um, if you <laughs> even if you haven't read about the state of nature, I think it's fair to say that liberals act as if it exists because something yeah. that Helen did include in her notes was references to Stephen Pinker, and this is something we've said in our long form podcast coming out soon. Stephen Pinker writes the blank slate, talking about how. The state of nature is a fallacy, references Locke, goes through all, all of the literature available to him at the time on evolutionary psychology and neuroimaging to say there are differences between peoples, between men and women, are unconscious, and then writes Enlightenment Now, saying that the redistribution of material resources will make everyone equal and equally enlightened, and the better angels of our nature saying that society is on the long arc towards to, of history bending towards justice, observable by the fact that states are decreasing their amount of crime. Now, Stephen... Fascist states also have a lot low crime. So that might not want to be the standard that you implement there because it kind of underwrites your liberal ideal. And also, we had a low crime rate before we had a massive state. And then the 20th century happened. Hmm, quite. So if you're a liberal, um, maybe read some Locke. <laughs> well, speaking of the Lockean project, should we get on to uh, America? Ah. Wrap up, shall we? Oh. So, Ralph, here we go. Oh, this good is Lord. I, so. You're, Internet forgets nothing. Exactly. You're a, look, you're a great commentator, especially all the stuff you've been doing on Julia's show recently, setting the climate policy right. You did have a dud take, though, and I wanted to talk to you about it to see if your opinions changed over time. So you've endeared yourself to our audience with all the Lenin and, <laughs> and Hitler quotes. <laughs> let's, see, let's see if this is any different. So, so this was an old article you did for Newsweek saying that you were encouraged by the January 6th committee and you referenced the Beer Hall Putsch, which I think might have been a bit of a hyperbolic comparison. Did, did I? Did I? Can you scroll down to this? I don't know if you, you, you did. You did say uh, sort of. There we go. Uh, 2022 to Weimar Germany. Recall that of March in 1920. Bits of the German army, nationalists, and monarchists sent to overthrow the democratic government, etc. So 
bits of references to sort of pre-Hitlerian Germany there. Yes, but, but okay, very, very well, I have to defend myself immediately. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but I was making the point that it was not like this. Oh, okay, <laughs> right. I was, I was about, okay, so that's, oh, my, right. yeah, yeah, that's, no. that's my misreading. Fair oh, enough. Whoo. Totally, totally fine. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> but I will say the title, Restoring Your Faith in US Democracy. Now, to be fair, often these titles are created by editors. Of course. Not the writers. So. Yes, yes. Um, so this was about nearly two years ago now, blimey. And I think it's worth reassessing some of the information that's come out since, particularly in the light of the slap on the wrist that a certain Ray Epps was given. Yes. Yes. So the reason I say this as well is because the Iowa caucus was in the past few days, and Vivek Ramaswamy has since dropped out of the presidential race, thrown his support behind Trump. And when he did so, they were chanting VP at him. So he's top of the list for picks. And Vivek has some good policy positions. As of today, Trump has come out on Vivek's advice against CBDCs. All great stuff. But at the debate with the four candidates, back when the man mountain Chris Christie was still in the race, he said that, why am I the only person on the stage who can say January 6th looks like an inside job? And he repeated this later on at a CNN town hall when this presenter kept interrupting him. And during the CNN town hall, he accused the FBI of having informants in the crowd, just like the Governor Whitmer kidnapping plot, and the government was withholding over 200 hours of footage depicting police officers admitting protesters into the Capitol and firing tear gas and rubber bullets in the crowd. And when those pieces of footage were released, what did it look like? We'll get to those. Yeah, okay. So, contentious claims, sure. And for the uninitiated, perhaps who had faith in the democratic processes, who were thinking the January 6th committee was on the up and up, they might be thinking, well, a bit outlandish. I want to draw your attention to this gentleman by the name of Ray Epps. Now, the reason I'm mentioning Ray Epps is because when Senator Ted Cruz questioned one of the heads of the FBI, it's uh, Jill Sanborn, she's the executive assistant uh, director of the National Security Branch, he asked her multiple times, were there FBI informants present? How many were there? Can you say who they were? And she said, Senator, I can't disclose the nature of ongoing investigations. So that wasn't a no. Yeah. And we know with intelligence agencies, when they don't say no, it's probably a yes. And when they do say no, they're lying and it's probably a yes. And the reason I bring this up is because Ray Epps, the man behind a lot of January 6th conspiracy theories, despite tons of arrests, we've had about 1,200 arrests, 700 sentences, people are in jail with a waiting trial since January 6th. Yeah, three years on. Ray Epps, a man who on camera was inciting the Capitol riot, got probation. Yeah. A year of probation, which is kind of curious. So, and Politico... And just as a quick thing as well, I've seen lots of footage of January the 6th. He is the only person I have seen actually say, we have to go into the building. Yeah. Yep. He's the only one. Yep. Well, well yeah, exactly. So, we've got, we've got all that footage here, actually. Yeah. I'm just going to play it. Here we go. Bit. The Capitol. Into the Capitol. What? Yeah, what? I love the response. Yeah, get on baked Alaska. Yeah. And there's there's loads of this as well. I'm just gonna mute it and let it run in the background. Because even Politico, not exactly the far right outlet, you know, they said the sentence of Ray Epps is more lenient than the six months of prison time that prosecutors requested. And it marks the conclusion of one of the strangest January 6th subplots in the saga of Epps, the former oath keeper from Arizona, among the first pro-Trump rioters to breach barricades, then became the target of far-right conspiracy theories. What, like the fact that he's got a lenient sentence despite being basically the only guy on camera who's saying we need to breach the Capitol. Yeah, but I mean, just, just a quick thing. A lot of far-right conspiracy theories seem to come true. So, 
Uh, yeah, that's not a judgment. Well, as, as you were saying before the show, far right is meaningless now. You're calling Russell Brand and Joe Rogan far right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, I, have, I have to admit I have a, I have a real problem. Uh, which, I mean, I'm, and, you know, I'm a happy warrior uh, because I said I, 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 I like resolve. I don't like anger. Uh, right? I, I think one should be concerned, but I don't like despair. But I have to admit, so this is why, why things like you do with the Lotus, he just gives you lots of hope, right? As long as these things exist, I think the battle is not lost and we're just at the beginning. But one of the things about January 6th, I remember precisely when, when all these, this video and everything came out, when it happened. I mean, it was like, they had weapons. They, they found uh, two pipe bombs. Uh, um, the three, sec- uh, three policemen have been bludgeoned to death, right? So the information that came out at the beginning that really sound, I mean, that, that, that's, oh my God, right? This is an armed, Uprising. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. never an insurrection because, as I also, kind of, I did say this also in the article, I said, what was the, what did they expect, right? That, that all of a sudden the guy with the horns uh, will be the, the commander in chief and, and the U.S. military and the National Guard will, you know, pledge allegiance to Trump for eternity. The guy it's, with the lectern. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is how it works. But, but <laughs> the, um, like the, the, the way how the media jumped on it, or, or the, the, the mainstream media, as we say, how they jumped on it, and were willing to run with absolutely unverified things, and then, you know, kind of. Even once contrary information came out, they were unwilling to retract the, the I guess the, the term would be misinformation that they let out or that they spread. That really worries me because the problem what we said before, kind of in 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 but instead of when we when we said, talked about you know what would Hitler do thing, the problem of course is if you honestly believe, and I think that more of them, that, that's what I underestimated. I thought this is all politi- hyperbol- hyperbolic in political competition. But I think there are people from the BBC to the, the German public broadcasters yeah. uh, to the New York Times who really think that the other side are fascists and Nazis and yeah. therefore everything is permitted. Even lying, like even bending or, or, or negating the truth because they truly are, as we said, Nazis and fascists. I always thought they only say it you know, for dramatic effect. I think they really believe it. On, on that point, then it's very curious that Ray Epps is the only January the 6th rioter to get a positive write-up by the New York Times. Yeah, what would I have to do to get a positive write-up by the New York Times? Insult Jess Phillips a bunch more. Yeah, clearly. exactly. <laughs> like, I, there's nothing I could do to get this write-up that Ray Epps is getting yeah, right it, now. It's mad. And so when Vivek Ramaswamy said, I don't know, bit suspicious, maybe he's a federal operative, a bit like the Gretchen Whitmer case. People go, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. It's not like <laughs> the Gretchen Whitmer case was riddled with feds one-to-one. They always are. Yeah. The feds, there, there was one where there was like nine of them and eight of them were feds. It's like, really? This, this one, the indictments, I'll, I'll read a bit here, but I think there are up to 12 federal agents involved in this. It's mad. <laughs> this so, so the Whitmer kidnapping plot, this came out yeah. just before the election. So it was a scaremonger about far-right extremism. So these were 13 the men. planning to capture. Sorry. Well, basically, as I know, I I'm know, not lying. You know. know, these were the Wolverine Watchmen, and they were charged with plotting to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. So six of the men, this is Croft, Garbin, Harris, Fox, Carsetta, and Franks, were indicted by a federal grand jury for conspiracy to commit kidnapping. Eight others were charged with providing material support to a terrorist group. Nine of the men were convicted. Five were acquitted because the five were entrapped by FBI informants. So this was Adam Fox, the accused ringleader. He was living in the basement of a vacuum shop and get, uh, brushing his teeth and using running water from an adjacent Mexican restaurant. So he was, a, he was a loner and a homeless man. And he had been convinced to do this stuff by a guy, uh, his, name is, his name is Dan. He's an FBI informant, who Big Dan Chapel, and he was a, a former Iraq war veteran. He was the one that was encouraging him to say, well, oh, maybe we should kidnap or maybe we should shoot or maybe we should blow up the house. And this fella, this homeless fella, he was playing with alcohol at a cookout and he was going, yeah, man, yeah. And the guy was wearing a wiretap going, see, they're plotting it. Obviously, it's just hypothetical 
hyperbole yeah. by a man who has none of the resources to commit this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're dragging him through the courts and putting it on trial because, and of all people, BuzzFeed knew broke this, it's advantageous ahead of the election to scaremonger about far-right extremism. Um, now, despite this, and again, call me a conspiracy theorist, as Vivek points out, the FBI head overseeing the Detroit field office during the Whitmer plot, the guy that was in charge of these federal agents, was appointed head of the DC field office three months before Jan 6th. Oh, really? Curious, that, isn't it? That's fascinating. Maneuvering there. Just failing upwards. Yeah. Clearly no entrapment going on would be a conspiracy theorist. Good on Vivek for posting all this stuff as well. Yeah. He is the shatterer of narratives. Yeah, no, good for him. Yeah. yeah. So, speaking of, of narratives, nothing better than visual proof. What about all those uh, that, that security footage that alleged exist? Well, here's the Capitol Police just sort of standing around. Average riot. Yeah. This is what the insurrection looks like. Well, look, they're all there. They're, yeah, yeah. they're, they're well armed. I've, again, we've both been around the Capitol before. You have to submit yourself to security. Checks. I haven't. I haven't been around the Capitol. Have you not? Oh, no, okay. No, no. Oh, um, I'll, I'll probably do it this year. Well, it's it's not shocking that they thought they were just allowed in if the police were ushering them in and it's open on any given day. I just can't get over. Oh yeah, there was an insurrection. Really, in in how many guns do they have? Zero. Really. Yeah, America. the only person that was shot was Ashley Babbitt. But just the the one country on earth in which there was an insurrection and not one gun was used. No, I don't believe you. Yeah, so <laughs> just, the right the right wing insurrection in the United States yeah, and will be done by guns. unarmed men, right? Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll yeah, be done by the guy true. in the Viking hat, as <laughs> you've said. And this is something that Tucker showed on his show shortly before he was cancelled from Fox. Uh, it was about twenty it's seconds in. This, he got the security the footage that ended up exonerating Jacob Chansley because he's being escorted through the Capitol by the police officers. Well, they st he stayed within the uh, velvet ropes, didn't he? Yes. So, you know. <laughs> like most of the violent rioters yeah. in 2020. Oh, exactly. wait, not an insurrection yeah. yet again. And so after this, he his appeal was deemed successful and he was let out because obviously he doesn't think he shouldn't be there. The Capitol police officers wearing masks are opening the doors for him. <laughs> Just come on. So yeah. Oh no, sorry, not this way. It's the other way. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my apologies, Viking man. Look, they're all just standing there. Okay, whatever. Um, they've, uh, another, another man has also been acquitted because he reasonably said, and the judge had judged this, uh, that he was allowed to enter the Capitol on the grounds that the Capitol Police were, were letting him in. That's because they literally opened the doors for them. Yeah, so this is now a, now a trend. Uh, some of the officers weren't as accommodating to the tourists, so I'll wrap this up quick just because we're getting on for time. There is footage of officers just indiscriminately firing rubber bullets at the crowd and throwing gas grenades in there and all that. I'm sure that wasn't designed to rile them up. Yeah, quite. But this was only at one entrance. Because at the oh. back entrance, the yeah, they, officers that they were corresponding with were letting them in. So why were there two different strategies that do different entrances? Why were they just firing indiscriminately on a crowd that hadn't attacked them yet? Um, not exactly the best police practice there, but, but there you go again. Maybe I'm just a conspiracy theorist. All right, then. Uh, on, to, on to the next bit, though. Even after all this, so even after all this has come out, U.S. Attorney... Uh, DC US attorney Matthew Graves is now saying that even if you didn't go in the building, even if you weren't violent, any America that was in American that was in the DC area during January the sixth may now be liable to prosecution. Yeah. So it's a political show trial. Yeah, exactly. They're just prosecuting their political opposition, quite clearly. Now this is at this point of recording, so this is late January 2023. Four. There's been 1,200 arrests, 170 people convicted, 710 people pled guilty with 720 receiving sentences. Only two people have been fully acquitted and some other appeals have gone through. So that's a lot of people and it still isn't enough for the Biden DOJ. But, but, but all right. And just to point out, this isn't an insurrection. Yeah. Palestinian activists literally breaking down the border barricade outside the White House the other night. Not an insurrection when Palestinian 
protesters occupy the Cannon House building, not an insurrection when feminists occupied the Capitol building during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, not an insurrection when the 2020 rioters burned down St. John's Church. Actually, they accused Trump of doing a photo op instead of, uh, instead of burning down a historic church there. Yeah, so, so why is all this happening? Just to finish, um, because of this. Yeah. Trump is winning in a landslide in the GOP primaries. Only 2% of the votes came in and the New York Times already declared it a win for him. They are bleep scared of President Trump winning a safe and secure election. And so they want to manufacture consent as much as possible to take him off the ballot. So just to round this off, not to, to throw you under the bus, Ralph, because you have great takes on, on pretty much everything. So has your opinion changed since the January the 6th? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was, uh, I, I mean, as I said, this, I have a huge trauma. This. I was, unfortunately, in many areas, when uh, one is never, uh, luckily one can always learn, but uh, I have entirely underestimated the, the willingness of, 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 let's say, the leadership or the main actors in crucial institutions to subvert the democratic process or the will of the people to further entrench their powers or, or support their candidates. I, I openly admit, I mean, the United States are a very good example for this, uh, the federal government, parts of the judicial system. Uh, this is not how this is supposed to work. And in many cases, but the argument is often that if, if after 10 years of a trial, the defendant actually wins to say, well, you see the system works. No, it doesn't because the trial is the punishment. If yeah. you drag somebody their entire life for 10 years through a trial, even if they win at the end, the life is over. Like they, they owe the house and the money to their uh, to the lawyers. Uh, their reputation is shattered. Their family life is dead. So you ruin somebody's life and at the end say the process works. Well, I'm not so sure if this is the case, but it, it goes back. To, I mean, we see this uh, just as a quick note on this. And this really worries me. So you have in Germany debates about banning the AFD. You have similar discussions in Austria about whether you can do something against, against the Freedom Party. You have the attempts in the United States to get Donald Trump off the ballot. So there is a trend, right, kind of as, as it now becomes clear that it will be harder and harder to keep uh, right-wing, I say, I don't call them populists, I call them popular, popular politicians from, from sharing or, or getting into power. And, and I don't think there are any bounds. I mean, you see the same with the European Union, and I'm full disclosure that I work for Hungarian think tank, but nonetheless, everybody can look this up. What the European Union is doing to Hungary uh, is that's that's liberal imperialism, right? This is this yeah. is the attempt yeah. to force a worldview, to force the acceptance of certain policies onto a country where a majority of the people says we don't want this. And what do they say? Well, then you don't get money. Or, like, or, or now, for example, Hungarian students can no longer participate in student exchange. They can no longer participate in the Erasmus program. So if I, if I want to be facetious, it's not harder for a Hungarian student to get into a German university than it is for a Middle Eastern terrorist. And I have to admit then something's wrong there. But I think it goes back to what we said before. If you're a patriot, if you're a nationalist, if you identify with quote-unquote Western traditions, you are seen as the threat. And if you come from something else, as you just mentioned, if you can, if, uh, to give you another example, let's do a real quick one, which is so funny. Uh, in Austria, as everywhere else, we have very strong you know, uh, traffic laws. And you know, when you ride a car, you, you should use a seatbelt. Yeah. Except you lean out of your window and wave a Palestinian flag, right? Oh, and all really? of a sudden they say, "Well, there isn't really there's over there. there is nothing we can do." Ah, it's like protesting over here during COVID. Exactly. It, it exactly. If, if you're dark enough in skin tone and you're doing it for the right reason, Precisely. then it's fine. And yeah. this, I think, is this is the big shift because they have shown again from London to Vienna that during COVID, right, they could pretty much arrest you. In Austria, it happened. I don't know about you. Right? If you walked your dog, they could arrest you. But now all of a sudden, if you call for, you know, let's say the beheading of Jews, they say, oh, old chap, there's nothing we can do. Freedom people, of speech. Yeah, depends exactly. on the context. Exactly. And yeah. more and more people say, wait a moment, that doesn't seem right. And I think yeah. this is why these parties are winning, because 
my in many areas i would say what what within the you know the editorial board of, of the guardian or the washington post or the new york times is far right is for most people or a growing number of people common sense and i think this will be harder and harder to conceal yeah spot on and that's why i wanted to go over that it wasn't to drag you through the coals it's to show that you an incredibly intelligent and uh, a man who operates in good faith there's no so, button now. There's no button. No, no, there isn't. At all. No, I wouldn't have you on the show otherwise. But these institutions try and pull the wool over the eyes of the people that still believe that the process is fair, impartial, and just. And actually, as you've articulated, the process is the punishment. So yes, it's not conspiracy theory to say January 6th was an inside job. And with that, let's go to the written comments on the website. Do you want to do some of these? Yeah, I'll do them. Um, Sophie says, just want to say, Ralph is a fantastic guest. Ah, thank you so much, Sophie. Uh, there are lots of people who are saying that, so that's good. Uh, Michael says, Ralph is right. There, there can be no compromise on people's culture. I work in dairy in Cornwall, and they can't even agree with Devon on the jam cream debate and have blazing rows about it. <laughs> yeah, Josh would be inflamed about that as well. Yeah, but the thing is, the, the Cornish are wrong about the... Uh, so, uh, ancient debate in England, you've got a scone, you put the cream on first, and then the jam, or the jam on first, and then the cream. And I, I, love, I love the English. I, I, can, I love it, and, and as I said about citizenship, I still hope that I find an English girl mad enough to marry me. But... <laughs> There is, you know, empire, great, language, fantastic. Many things I love. Cooking, cuisine. You know, there's, hey, 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 father, here we go. My father, right. had this, my father had this great joke. The three th thinnest books in the world are the, the uh, um, uh, Italian heroes myth, uh, yeah. the Swedish wine book, and the British cookbook. That's all true. <laughs> I'm not going to lie about that, but I will get into that argument another time. <laughs> Obviously, cream on first because it acts like butter. Yeah, exactly. It's just... The Cornish are just wrong about yep. how to make how to load a scone. <laughs> silly language, silly cuisine. <laughs> anyway. Thomas, Thomas says, uh, Ralph's bang on point. We've not, again, we've not engaged enough uh, FAFO internationally for 100 years, especially for the right reasons of defending British citizens and British interests. That's totally true. Uh, the last time was, of course, Thatcher in the Falklands. Hmm. And that went great. We made a point, you know? Uh, anyway, Matt says, uh, if you think 75% asylum claim approval rate is bad, Ireland has 94.4% approval rate last year. Why did you blow up our cars? What was the point? Genuinely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Who could, I, I mean, I, I grew up uh, on military bases during the Troubles, right? And so we had warnings about the IRA and terrorism everywhere. You know, the, there, were, there were constant like uh, signs up being like, don't walk the same route to work every day. You know, um, check under your car with the mirror to make sure there's no bomb under it. Now, we were on a base in Germany. So, of course, that didn't happen. You know, that's not where the IRA are going to go. But it was just, you could see it was in the thinking of the forces, right? The Irish nationalists are going to be constantly under attack. Uh, but now, the Irish nationalists will be like, oh, are you guys refugees too? Yeah. Islands for everyone. You know, like they've gone totally woke. They'll just detonate glitter bombs, if anything. Yeah, exactly. They've gone totally woke. And honestly, I find it embarrassing for the Irish. Like, because I mean, like, okay, didn't like the IRA, but at least I could respect the IRA. At least I didn't like. Oh, okay, they're pathetic. You know, at least at least they were they were, they were something important, and you you had to pay attention to them. Not now. <laughs> like anyway, they, they they become like the Catholic Church, at least in the West, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, the weird, but that's. I am a long-suffering Catholic, so I am nodding. <laughs> I mean, I always say that I will. I mean, I'm still a member of the Catholic Church. I still pay my dues. I'll continue, but honestly, I keep my fingers crossed that we finally get one of those African popes. <laughs> Who's actually a Christian? Cardinal Robert Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, absolutely. It's, it's, he he wants he wants to abolish the UN. Good for him. New Pope, please. <laughs> and then, and then the, like the, the Pope, even when, when he said, "Well, there are many ways to salvation. It doesn't yeah, have to." Be yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. If I say that it's okay, if the, it's like it's like you know, it's like the the the, the head of Manchester United saying, "Sure, I mean, winning is great, but I mean, there are other great teams out there as well." Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, the, yeah. The, the best one, not to bring up the spirit of Hitler again, but um, the, pope, <laughs> the Pope the other day said, "I I hope that hell is empty." It's like, really? That's interesting. 
Every, everyone's up there, is he? Everyone. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, the Shadow Man says, I doubt a single person could be deported. NGOs will fight tooth and nail legally. And that's exactly the problem. And the Conservatives, with their 380 seat majority, did nothing. They could have just repealed these laws and should have just repealed these yep. laws. Um, so there's literally no ground for purchase for the NGOs to use. But what can you do? Brandon says, Britain approves a high percentage of asylum claims in Europe. Not very racist, if you ask me. I know, that's the problem. <laughs> um, uh, Matt says, I'd like to say Ralph has been an excellent guest. Ah, uh, very erudite and pointed in his comments and analysis. Yeah. Uh, Lord Nerevar says, if I'm honest, I've never read Locke either. But even without having read him, I can use my common sense to see that James is hilariously wrong on every count because he's dealing with an industrial bout of cognitive dissonance, arguing with Carl. Uh, well, this is the thing. Like, If I was someone who was intrinsically oppositional to liberalism, I think this would have actually been fine for James. I think he would have been on much stronger ground. Yeah, if he was arguing with me. Possibly, yeah. But I've, I've come from within the tradition. And, yeah. just, you know, I. I well, you did a two hour chat with him. You offered yeah, to do yeah. it again. And he was but like, it wasn't very productive the first time. Why? Because you, you, you lost. That's why. <laughs> like, you, weren't even, you weren't even thinking of it winning and losing. Because no, Benjamin Boyce doesn't do that sort of show. No, but he great. thought he lost. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I mean, Andrew says, God's sake, I think Lindsay's responses strike me as nothing short of embarrassing and childish. Harry and you I tried to right. engage him in a sincere and serious discussion, and he seems to have dismissed that out of hand. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know why, but um, you know, I, I think I'm right on that. Didn't he have similar conversations with Yoram Hassoni as well that kind of went, yeah. went very, very, that again became very personal very quickly? We covered that in our, in our two part. That was one of the impetuses for talking ah, okay, about yeah, his yeah. beliefs on Christian nationalism and liberalism. He, 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 he was saying that no one should read Schmidt because Schmidt once threw his lot in with the mid-century Germans before renouncing his membership because they were persecuting Catholics and was later befriended and translated by Jews. And I pointed this out to him and he just went, you're a Nazi and not worth talking to. And I was like, thanks very much all. Uh, moving on to the uh, the, se- the third segment then, because that's not worth talking about more. Uh, Andrew says, loving today's show. Definitely would be great to have Ralph on again. Wonderful hearing all the historical an- anecdotes. Uh, yeah, no, it's been really great. As you can see from the audience. Uh, Justin says, America, where there is a gun behind every blade of grass, but none of the January 6th riots. Yeah, I know. Isn't that, it, like, it's just preposterous. Uh, and honestly, I'm not even going to get into it. Uh, Kevin says, I find it amazing that the FBI have been able to find and arrest people who are just in the back of the crowd at the Trump address to the crowd, but not in the Capitol building, but they can't find the pipe bomber, even with several videos in this kind of number plate. Right. So what happened with the pipe bombs? Because they just disappeared. Yeah. They've fallen out of the narrative. Yeah. Like, I, mean, were... did, did, uh, I honestly have to ask, did they, I'm wondering if they ever really existed. Yeah. Well, it's the same with the three police officers that were opposed the uh, right? blood to death. One of them commit suicide and two died of a stroke like yeah. weeks or months yeah. after. It was all lies. Yeah. And like we found a pipe bomb at the Democrat and Republican headquarters. Hmm. Okay, but, but those those have to have been planted well before even the barricades were breached. Why, so how could Trump have incited that? But why would you bomb both? <laughs> like, was this an independent pipe bomber? <laughs> it was like, no, I, I vote libertarian. I was like, what? <laughs> Ted Kaczynski's last act of defiance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, is if this is anyway. <laughs> I just don't understand it. <laughs> but and, uh, unless, of course, you were, I don't know, um, a member of the FBI and you're covering your bases. Yeah. And this was entirely uh, confective. But uh, he says, also, the reason for the delay in releasing all J6's video is because they haven't finished blurring out the faces of the individuals not involved. Uh, for that, read our FBI agents. Quite. Yes. Quite. Um, and Paul says, uh, January 6th was pretty mild compared to many protests at their capital. 
which of course is totally true. Well, the George Floyd riots that cost $2 billion in damage and killed over about a dozen to two dozen people, um, very few prosecutions for that. Because and you could literally see Washington, D.C. on fire. Well, the vice president said they will not stop and they shouldn't stop. Yeah. So, yeah. And do you remember when Trump was, uh, the, the White House was attacked and Trump had to retreat to a bunker? That was on the firebombing of that church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no increase for that. They actually just insulted him. But anyway, we are running close on time. Before we do so, uh, Ralph, we're just going to plug your social media because please go and follow Ralph. I mean, yes, please do. Please do. Because I have a vast ego. My vanity knows no bounds. So. <laughs> <laughs> every, every follow, everything is, is very much appreciated. Well, yeah, so, so you're gonna you you always post clips of whenever you go on mainstream news, and you're gonna yes. be on Neil Oliver's show this this weekend. Also support Neil because he's one of the few oh, yeah, best voices over on GB News. So uh, Ralph's Instagram and Twitter are up here. Uh, join us back in about half an hour for Lads Hour, which Ralph will be sitting in on and telling more historical anecdotes and putting two hundred billion dollars to good use. Thanks very much for the show, gentlemen. I thought it was exceptional. Uh, until next time, goodbye.